Good evening and welcome to episode 100, episode 100 of the Political Mike podcast. 444 days, 444 days. That's how long over 50 American diplomats were held hostage in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran by Iranian students. The hostages were held between November 4th, 1979 and January 20th of 1981. However, a bombshell confession made just a few days ago conveys that this ordeal may not have had to have lasted this long. As the New York Times reported this past Saturday, Ben Barnes, formerly served as Speaker of the Texas House of of Representatives from 1965 to 1969, and the 36th Lieutenant Governor of Texas from January 21st, 1969 to January 16th, 1973, for two terms, after four decades, he recently confessed that his longtime political mentor invited him on a mission to the Middle East. What Mr. Barnes said he did not realize until later was the purpose of the mission, to sabotage the re-election campaign of the then President of the United States, Jimmy Carter. It was 1980, and President Carter was in the White House, deviled by a hostage crisis in Iran that had paralyzed his presidency and hampered his efforts to win a second term. Americans every evening were reminded of how long this crisis was going on. Mr. Carter's best chance for victory was to free the 52 Americans held captive before Election Day. That was something that Barnes said his mentor was determined to prevent. His mentor was none other than John B. Connolly, a titan of American politics and former Texas governor who had served three presidents and just lost his own bid for the White House. A former Democrat, Connolly had sought the Republican nomination in 1980 himself, only to be swamped by former Governor uh, Ronald Reagan of California. Now, Connolly resolved to help Reagan beat Carter, and in the process, Mr. Barnes said, make his own case for becoming the next Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense in in a new Republican administration. What happened next, uh, Barnes has largely kept secret for nearly 43 years. Mr. Connolly, he said, took him to one Middle Eastern capital after another that summer, meeting with a host of regional leaders to deliver a blunt message to be passed to Iran. Don't release the hostages before the election. Reagan will win and give you a better deal. Then shortly after returning home, Barnes said, Connolly reported to William J. Casey, the chairman of Reagan's campaign and later director of the CIA, briefing him about the trip in an airport lounge. Here joining me today is Mr. Les Francis, who served as the deputy assistant and deputy White House chief of staff to President Jimmy Carter. He is a communication specialist and political strategist with extensive experience in both the private and public sectors. He's also a highly regarded policy and opinion leader in national political circles. He's also served as a volunteer consultant to the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs and has advised democratic movements and parties in Northern Ireland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Romania, Bolivia, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Bosnia. Uh, Mr. Francis, thank you so much for being a part of the political mic today. Uh, Mike, it's good to be with you. It's good to see you again. Good to see you again, too. It's been a while. And, and, and I would love for the audience that the first time I met Mr. Francis was when I was an undergrad, um, and I've had the privilege to meet him through uh, Professor Preston Foster, who is a, a friend of this platform. So thank you for making the time. I want to ask you, Mr. Francis, about your thoughts. What are your thoughts about this bombshell report, um, you know, four decades after you served in the inner circle of the Carter administration? Um, what are your thoughts in regards to uh, Ben Barnes' new confession that he played a role in undermining um, you know, American diplomatic efforts during that time period. It was said in 1947 by Republican Senator um, Arthur Vandenberg that 
we must stop partisan politics at the water's edge. And of course, he cooperated with Democratic President Truman and forging a bipartisan and forging bipartisan support for the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan in NATO. I have a lot of thoughts on this, and I'm going to take a few minutes if you don't mind. Um, at the time, uh, I moved from the White House to the re-election campaign in October of 79, uh, just a few weeks before the hostages were taken, just a few weeks before Senator Kennedy entered the race to challenge President Carter in the primaries. And I had different assignments of, in the re-election campaign. Uh, the summer of 80, I moved to the DNC as executive director, and then I moved back to the campaign in the fall of 1980 to take over as uh, acting campaign manager. So this this subject is uh, a matter of, uh, as you might have guessed, particular interest to me. Uh, but I want to I want to uh, I want to say a couple of things about the incident we're talking about, the episode we're talking about. But I also want to put it in a larger context. Uh, there have been several reports and uh, authoritative writings uh, going back now at least 30 years. Uh, Gary Sick, who was on the uh, NSC staff, wrote a book about this in, I think, the early 90s called October Surprise, where he he basically builds the case that, that uh, there was uh, chicanery going on with the Republicans and the Iranians uh, uh, in the in you know, the run-up to the 80 election. More recently, both Jonathan Alter and Kai Bird have written authoritative uh, biographies of Jimmy Carter and histories of his presidency. Both of them connect several of the dots uh, as it relates to what the Reagan folks were up to vis-a-vis -vis the Iranians uh, in, in the fall, oh, summer and fall of, of 1980. Uh, this latest revelation by uh, Ben Barnes, who who actually was a Democrat, but he, he operated with the Republicans and, and, and is well known in political circles, not just in Texas, but nationally. I think it's sort of shameful that he waited 40 years to tell the story. Uh, but let's think about this. Not only did what Ben Barnes do, and by the way, one of the other stories that both Kai Bird and Jonathan Alter write about, is that Casey was, is now known to have been in Madrid uh, uh, at one point in 19, I forget what month, at the exact same time that representatives of the Iranian government were in Madrid. And, and uh, th this is not a coincidence. It's clear they had meetings. So Casey's at the center of this conspiracy. I don't think it's going too far to say that Casey not only violated the Logan Act in terms of uh, having dealings with the foreign government, I think he committed treason uh, against his own country. Uh, but, but not only did it probably cost us the election, I, I'll go to my grave believing that it cost us the election. Um, my, my boss and late friend Hamilton Jordan said, after the election, we could beat Kennedy or Khomeini. We couldn't beat them both. Uh, and, and clearly had the hostages been released before the election, I think we would have, we would have won. So that changed the course of American history and certainly the course of, of political history. But think about this. Not only did 
did Barnes and Connolly and Casey and those other guys uh, interfere with the election of a president of the United States, which is bad enough. They left those hostages in Iranian prison for extra weeks and months. And that's darn near barbaric when you think about what they did to fellow Americans. It goes beyond politics. So that's one set of views. But this is not an isolated case. In 1968, Richard Nixon and agents of his campaign, using uh, Madame Anna Chenault, had sidebar conversations, if you will, with the South Vietnamese government, urging the South Vietnamese to avoid or not participate or not be totally forthcoming in the Paris peace talks that the Johnson administration was engaged in. And the same, and the message was the same. If you hold out, you'll get a better deal from Nixon than you're going to get it from Johnson. So there's a history here of Republican or presidential operatives uh, uh, going against the national interest for their own political interests. Now fast forward to 2016 and Donald Trump and his campaign sought, received, and benefited from involvement of the Russians uh, in his election. That Those facts are also now no longer disputed by people who pay attention. So uh, I find it deeply troubling. And I'm, you know, there are many, I mean, I know a lot of Republican operatives. I consider them friends. I consider them to be honorable people. But there were people involved in 68 and 80 and 2016 who were not honorable. And I defy anyone to cite an example where Democrats at the presidential level for sure have ever done anything quite like that. This is not dirty tricks. This is not political gamesmanship. This is something much, much more serious. And I'm glad you brought out the, the parallels between 68 and 80, uh, you know, campaigns and, and what happened during those times. And, and the recent election of 2016, why is it there, there's such a double standard in your view where, you know, we don't have um, bipartisan investigations, um, serious investigations looking into stopping um, any further undermining of American um efforts for political domestic political reasons and, and and in that vein do you think that this has set a precedent that can't be taken back now now that we've seemed to tolerate it not once but three times at least in recent history well i, I wish i had the answer to that question mike um i think there is a uh, certainly there's a double standard I think there's a, also an, a danger, what I call of oh hum, <laughs> that this is just the way politics is it, uh, and, and both sides do it, which they don't. Uh, um, but it, it, the public, I think, and I've been talking to some of my friends and colleagues from that era, 
And my view is we ought to kick up as much dust as we can around this Ben Barnes revelation and what what Kai Bird and Jonathan Alter have gotten their books about Casey and whatnot. And at least try to warn the American voters, put them on notice to watch out for this kind of chicanery and and uh, duplicity and and double dealing and whatnot. So that if it happens again, people will see it. I mean, the 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 Russian involvement in 2016, you didn't have to be a conspiracy theorist during the course of that campaign to figure out something was wrong, right? The emails, the timing of the emails, uh, how they got them, WikiLeaks, uh, uh, the role of Roger Stone. I mean, all of that was known or elements of it were known during the 16 campaign. Not enough that anything could really be made of it, but certainly afterwards it became clear. And uh, we just need to alert voters better, more loudly, more effectively, what to watch out for, because it'll happen again. I'm just as sure as we're sitting here, somebody's going to try to do something like that, maybe around our involvement in Ukraine. Who knows? Uh, I, I don't put them past them, and I'm sorry to have to say that. So, you know, what do you wish that more Americans knew about that time period during the Iran hostage crisis, about Carter's efforts, how hard he was working uh, in the Oval Office to get the American diplomats, the 52 Americans home. And, you know, how do you think that this new revelation alters the way in which we view that Carter presidency? Um, a lot of folks have, you know, now become so comfortable with the narrative that this was a man who, despite his best efforts, um, was a kind man, but in over his head. That, that seems to be the kind of consensus a lot of Americans are going for. And he had more of a successful post-presidency life than current, and then, then while he was in office. What do you wish more Americans knew about that time period? And, you know, if you could take back the curtain for us uh, during that Iran hostage crisis of, with the ongoing well, efforts to return the Americans. First of all, as I said, I had gone from the White House to the campaign. And there was no connection between our campaign activities and what was going on with the Iranian hostage crisis. No conversations at all. Uh, it was handled, first of all, it was handled very closely within the White House with the, you know, the president, the vice president, and a few senior aides. Nobody else in the White House even knew what was going on behind the scenes. It was, it was, clearly on a need to know basis. I mean, the only conversation I had in the course of that whole thing that had to do with the hostages was a campaign manager, Jim, uh, Tim Kraft and I in the primaries early on in the fall of 79, argued strongly against the president adopting what came to be known the Rose Garden strategy and not because we felt that having him sort of sequestered in the White House working on the hostage crisis, took our best player off the field in the re-election campaign. We wanted the president out there campaigning. We lost that argument. That's the only conversation I ever had in 14 months about with the White House about the hostages. We were we were not involved in that in any way. The the now what does this do to the to the uh, assessment of the Carter presidency more broadly? 
First of all, a reassessment of the Carter presidency is already underway and has been underway for a few years. Uh, uh, people complimentary, very complimentary of his post-presidency to be sure. But I think that has caused people to take a second look at his presidency. They're looking at his presidency through the prism of his former presidency. And they're finding out the kind of values he had and things he cared about and the work he did and so forth. And, and then books by Stu Eisenstadt, and I mentioned both Jonathan Alter and Kai Bird, are putting you know, flesh on the bones. I mean, more information about what went on during those four years and, and the amazing accomplishments of, of Jimmy Carter in leg, legislative terms. He had a legislative record that rivaled Lyndon Johnson's. Uh, you look at a list of foreign policy achievements, uh, it's quite amazing. Uh, and as it relates to the hostages, we have to remember, and, and, and the Barnes story sort of has caused people to look at this again, even though the hostages were released, you know, one second after one minute after Reagan took the oath of office on January 20th, 1981, it was Jimmy Carter who successfully negotiated their release had nothing to do with the Reagan administration or anybody else. Carter worked right up until the end, all night on the night of the 1920th, which was one of many nights. We now know from accounts at the time, Carter was working on arrangements to get the hostages released. And, and one of the things he did, and it was the thing that finally brought the Iranians around was uh, the American government and others had, had frozen Iranian assets, about $8 billion when the hostages were taken. And, and one of the things that Carter agreed to that sort of broke things open was said, okay, those frozen assets will be returned. It was the Iranians' money. It wasn't our money. It wasn't American dollars. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't taxpayer money. He said, we will release those frozen assets once the hostages are free and clear. And, and that apparently was the tipping point for the Iranians, but they still waited until the last minute to agree to it. So one of the things we have to do is make sure people understand there was Jimmy Carter who got the hostages released. And by the way, remember what he said at the time, all through that, his goal was to get all the hostages back and back home alive. And he achieved that. Uh, uh, and it was sort of, I would say, an exclamation point on his on his presidency, especially as we look back on it now and, and are going through this, I think, broader reassessment that, that, that perhaps occurs with all presidents, but, but it's certainly going on in terms of, of uh, well, I was going to say all presidents. I don't think there'll ever be a positive reassessment of Donald Trump's presidency. His reputation is only going to get worse the more we know. What do you think President Carter thinks about this revelation of Ben uh, Barnes um, that he was involved in such an effort to undermine his efforts to bring back these Americans alive? I, I can't speculate on that. The president is in hospice care and, and, uh, uh, I, I have no way of knowing. I, I have no way of knowing whether this information has given been given to him or how he might have responded to it if it were given to him. I think had he known this 
earlier, it would have confirmed his own suspicions, which he has harbored from that time forward. I think he would have been sorely disappointed because Ben Barnes was uh, actually a friend uh, uh, to the president and to all of us in his Texas political days. And I think he would have, he'd, he'd be like all of us are angry that it took this long for the story to come out. Uh, now I give credit to Barnes for telling it. I mean, you know, better late than never, I guess. Uh, and, and he did it because he knew the president was, you know, appears to be in, you know, his transition from this world to another. Uh, and uh, so the, you know, credit to Barnes for at least telling the story, but it would have been nice if he told it a lot sooner. Would have been nice if he told it and right on the, after he and Connolly made the trip. <laughs> so many folks have drawn parallels between the Carter administration and the Biden administration with ongoing crises. Um, you know, we talked, you know, so far in the program about the Iran hostage crisis, but of course, this was also taking place amongst the backdrop of a financial crisis in, the, in this country. Um, you had a, an oil embargo. Um, there seemed to be multiple things at, at once. Um, and I believe that I, I remember, you know, going back and watching the election coverage of 1980. And there was a reporter that said it, it, it's as if all of these, uh, you know, situations were like the perfect um, concoction for a disastrous uh, presidency. And yet, he believed that Carter was as strong as the candidate as the Democrats had at the time. Um, I want to get your thoughts about how Carter handled the financial crisis and the energy crisis. Many um, have used his Malay speech or what's called his Malay speech as the kind of symbol of how he was unable to deal with uh, multiple crises at once and was in over his head. Uh, what do you wish folks knew more about in terms of his efforts to combat these multiple ongoing crises in the United States? And what do you think there's some, what do you think um, the Biden administration can learn from the Carter administration in dealing with uh, the ongoing, uh, you know, inflation um, that's going on? You have the federal, the chairman of the Federal Reserve announcing that interest rates are going to be hiked once again. Um, your thoughts? Well, I think we have to be careful about drawing parallels here, honestly. Uh, I think they're, they're vastly different situations. Um, let's start with energy uh, uh, to, to begin the conversation, energy policy, energy. Um, energy was barely on the It was it was almost not talked about during the '76 campaign. Uh, there had been, uh, as you know, uh, boycotts and shortages in the Nixon administration and so forth, but it wasn't a top of the mind issue in 1976. It wasn't a voting issue, '76. And it's my understanding, and I think Stu writes about this in his book, that 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 after the election and when Carter was briefed by the CIA and others on potential threats and, and our national security and whatnot, that, that 
it became clear that America was vulnerable, terribly vulnerable on the energy front because of our dependence on foreign oil. And that something had to be done about that, that we had to, we had to break our dependence on foreign oil. Uh, so Carter, you know, eventually we proposed and passed, people forget, three major comprehensive national energy acts. Uh, they took up a great deal of time, a great deal of staff effort, um, a great deal of the president's time, a great deal of the president's capital, political capital, but we got them done. Uh, we deregulated natural gas prices over the objection of Democrats, by the way, and that, that or some Democrats, and that, that has led to our, where we stand now, where natural gas is a, has basically helped make us energy independent in this country. Um, uh, we, uh, Imposed the uh, windfall profit tax on the oil companies. We 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 boosted the energy efficiency requirements on appliances and mileage for cars and a whole lot of things. Uh, so we've tried to both cut consumption as well as boost domestic production. And both of those things happened, by the way. And 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 actually, Reagan was probably the first beneficiary of all of that. The, the economic crisis was not of Carter's making. Uh, what happened was the inflationary pressures that had been building up during the Vietnam era uh, sort of exploded on our watch. I mean, and we, when we came into office, uh, the first concern at the time was uh, recession and unemployment and uh, Carter was had had proposed a fifty dollar tax rebate to boost the economy and so forth, but his economic advisors then concluded, no, our bigger problem going forward is going to be inflation. So we pulled back the the uh, uh, the rebate idea, and and dealt with tried to deal with inflation, those pressures that had been build, building before. Carter was elected. Now he, in response, he he was very tight-fisted when it came to the budget. Uh, you know, trying to trying to control uh, government spending and and its effect on the uh, economy. Uh, I mean, we now know that monetary policy has a lot more to do with the inflation and controlling inflation than fiscal policy. But but still, I mean, held he held the line on spending. Um, and to his credit, finally, not finally, decided that the way to deal with inflation was to squeeze it out of the economy through monetary policy. And he appointed Paul Volcker, chair of the Federal Reserve Board, knowing that Volcker was going to raise interest rates to to curb inflation and knowing that that was going to make his political Carter's political situation that much more uh, difficult. He do, he did that knowingly. He knew it at the time, said so at the time to advisors, but it was the right thing to do. And that is classic Carter doing the right thing, regardless of the political consequences time and time again, during his presidency, 
he he took stands or or did things that were not if in his political interest. Uh, Panama Canal treaties, Middle East peace talk, all those things were high risk, low reward politically. Um, and and I'm hoping that, and I think that's part of what's going on in terms of people reappraising his presidency. Now, the, the so-called Malay speech, as you said, the word was never used in the speech. Very few people know this, but uh, early on, Weeks before that speech, Hamilton Jordan came to me and a colleague, Wayne Granquist at OMB, and asked us to work with Pat Cadell on how how a speech might be framed. We were not on the speech writing staff, but we we began to put together uh, the pieces of of what might go into such a speech, and and uh, and when the time came, the the speech writers you know took what they wanted and discarded a lot. But the speech itself, if you go back and read the speech, it's a prescient speech. It's a, it's a, it's a heck of a piece of rhetoric. It's actually very good. And, and, and the poll results after the speech, Carter's reputation jumped several points in the poll. I forget how many, 12, 15 point increase in his positive rating. They then plunged when the president, I think, and I think Hamilton had admitted before he died, made a terrible mistake. And that was uh, the way we changed the cabinet where he fired cabinet officers and or asked for everybody's resignation. And it looked like we were in, uh, uh, you know, disorganized and, and the government was falling apart, which it wasn't. but had had that not because that killed that killed the positive momentum coming out of the speech and by the way the word malaise as i understand it the way it got attached to the speech was and i don't know this for a fact i'm just passing on what i've heard that uh the pacadell our pollster in conversations with reporters talked about a public malaise and that carter was going to address that problem or did address it uh, and, uh, Carter never used the term. Uh, and as I say, if you read the speech now in light of history, it, it's a damn good speech. <laughs> Pardon my language. I didn't, I didn't answer your question. And I apologize. I didn't answer the question about Biden. Oh, the, the parallels. I, I don't think there are many parallels. Okay. Uh, the inflation that Biden uh, is dealing with it's just it's a political problem no question about it but one the inflation rate is not as high as what we were dealing with in 1980 it is not a result of any american governmental policies it's a direct result of what happened with covid and and uh, the way the world economy came to a halt and and now demand is exceeding supply in in many ways uh and, and Biden has put in place counterinflationary measures that seem to be having an effect that the, the rate of inflation has leveled off and is coming down a little bit. The Fed is, is raising rates, but they're not nearly at the level of what we were dealing with in 1980. And they seem to be doing it in a measured way. Now, and the other thing that's happened, uh, 
that Biden deserves some, some credit for is that uh, uh, the job growth has been phenomenal. Uh, unemployment is way down, far below what we were able to achieve. Uh, and, uh, you know, he should get some credit for that. Um, Biden's, I think, on the foreign front, there are two or three things that, uh, this is not, again, I'm not drawing parallels at all to what we were faced with. First of all, we have the situation in Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. President Biden and his team have done an absolutely superb job of pulling the, the alliance together, holding it together uh, to provide assistance to the Ukrainians. Uh, and, you know, could, have, could weapons have gotten there sooner more weapons faster, you know, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But, but it's, it, it clearly, he did the right thing. He's done it in the right way. He's held the alliance together in a masterful way. And, and he should benefit from that because we're, we're, America's on the right side in this thing and we got to do whatever we can. And I think the president's committed to that. The tougher situation, and I'm not critical of Biden at all, because it is what's going on in, in and with China and what may be going on between China and Russia. And, you know, are they trying to recreate the, the alliance that they had sort of at the height of the Cold War? That's a, that's a challenge. That's a challenge for any American president, uh, any Western leader. I mean, it, uh, it's something we have to watch out for because they're up to no good. And uh, we've got to uh, do what the president has suggested, which we've got to increase defense spending. We've got to, uh, we've got to be prepared. We have to protect Taiwan if the Chinese make a move there. Um, we have to continue the assistance to the Ukrainians. We've got to make sure that the other countries in the region former, you know, Soviet bloc countries like Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and whatnot are not uh, next on uh, Putin's list. Um, and I, 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 give, I give Biden credit sub for what he's doing substantively on those things, even though the politics are not all that clear. Political effects here are not all that clear, but he deserves credit. On that note, if the Chinese, you know, provide arms to the Russians, do you, in your view, uh, should the United States, um, you know, and the and the European Union impose trade sanctions against China, since the future of China's aircraft industry is heavily dependent on Western companies? It's a, you know, I, I'm I'm no foreign policy expert. I don't know the answer to that. My gut would say, yeah, but the problem with that is China owns more American bonds than anybody else, right? I mean, we're, we're dependent on, on Chinese uh, investment in this country, and we're dependent on trade with China ourselves. I mean, so that's a, I don't know the right answer. I mean, you've had foreign policy experts on who know, you know Richard Haas and others who can answer that question more intelligently than I can. Uh, that's why I, I was never... 
I never would have been uh, in line to be national security advisor or secretary of state, Michael. <laughs> so, so President Carter was a very detail-oriented uh, uh, problem solver. Um, you know, going back to the oil embargo, you know, where you had, you know, during that time period, Western companies heavily depended on foreign oil. Um, you know, and OPEC shows its power by um, basically embargoing the oil in retaliation for America's support of Israel in the Yom Kippur War of 1973. And then again, during the Iranian Revolution of 1979. Um, how did Carter's, um, you know, fiscal conservatism <laughs> um, and his his determination to um, micromanage uh, every problem uh, show itself in this crisis? Well, I, I would, I, in this, I know the rep on Carter being a micromanager and to some extent, the 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 charge is sort of true i guess i i would never use the term he was very detail oriented he read everything that he was sent to him uh uh commented on the memos and so forth uh but you know micromanage people talk well he had to approve who played on the tennis court that's just that's just not true that did not happen it's part of the mythology uh his secretary had a schedule so that People could sign up on the schedule to play tennis so the president would have time to play tennis, but he never was involved in that. But anyhow, the, the, I go back to what I said before on the energy front and the, the, the OPEC embargoes and whatnot. That's why Carter's energy policies were two-pronged. Increased domestic production and curtailed domestic consumption to make us less vulnerable to the pressures from OPEC and, and other producers. And it, it was a tough fight, but we prevailed generally, and it has paid off uh, to this day. Um, and uh, it's, it's not because he was a micromanager, it's because he was a smart guy. And he listened to smart people and he read extensively on this stuff and he understood what was going on. And, you know, in those energy acts, these were multifaceted pieces of legislation. And I guarantee you, he knew what was in those bills. Uh, and and uh, uh, they were in for a reason and the trade-offs he knew about when they had to be made. Uh, but always with this dual goal of curbing consumption and increasing production. And because, as I said, Jimmy Carter is a smart guy. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, really smart. I mean, probably the smartest person I ever came across in terms of his ability to uh, take in, absorb information, uh, and uh and then utilize it uh so the camp david accords of course um you know this was jimmy carter's chief uh foreign policy accomplishment and you know over the course of 13 days you have president carter uh Manhattan Begin and anwar sadat the leaders of the united states israel and egypt all convening um at camp david um 
you know, there are dramatic negotiations that are occurring between the 5th and the 17th of September of 1978. Multiple times where there are, uh, I guess, moments on both the side of the Egyptians and the side of the Israelis where they felt as if they're just going to walk away from the deal. Carter manages to pull it all together. How did Carter manage to keep Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israel, Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin from leaving Camp David and, and then successfully brokering a peace deal between Egypt and Israel in 1978? Well, I, again, I was I, I was not involved. I was at the campaign, uh, and and obviously we paid close attention to that because uh, you know if if Carter were successful, it was going to be a political boost. Okay. But we weren't involved. The campaign was not involved in those conversations at all. We we learned about them the same way every other American did was from the news reports and and so forth. We also knew that if he came out of Camp David empty-handed, it would be a problem for us politically. Uh, now remember this. Now this is actually that took place before I went to the campaigns. That was that was in the fall of '79. Lots of time I went to the campaign. I still wasn't involved. That was not, you know, my area of responsibility. The the thing and and there's been there's a wonderful play that's been written about this. There's a wonderful book. I think thirteen. I'm trying to think of the name of the author. Um, Patrick Wright is. Is that right? Something like that. Uh, who's written a, a detailed account on it based on interviews with participants. And what, what you come away with is an understanding of several things. One, Carter, you're talking about detail and micromanagement. Carter had an intimate, detailed knowledge of the situation in the Middle East, the geography, the economics, the cultural clashes, the religious factors, the hit. All of that, Carter understood. So he was not an amateur going into those talks. He he knew as much or more than any of his advisors, I'm sure, and probably as much as Sadat and Begin in a way. So that's one fact. Second fact is that Carter is an incredibly disciplined and determined guy. He's not going to be talked out of something. He's not going to give up. Uh, he is. He is. Uh, uh, and, and obviously, I'm, I'm talking about him in the present tense. He is a when he when he was president and since he gets focused on something, he he just doesn't waver. So he was not going to, he was determined to get something accomplished at Camp David. And then near the end, if you've read the story, you know what happened. Uh, the talks fell apart, right? And Begin and Sadat had both packed their suitcases and were ready to leave. And Carter got photographs of himself with the two of them. And he signed the photographs for each of their principal's kids and grandkids. And he had the names, for example, of all the grandkids. 
And he signed them and with a message, and I can't quote it, but it's in the book, something about my hope was that uh, your grandfather could have come, could have brought peace to your land or something like that. You know, a very sweet, nice, personal message and signed to Jimmy Carter. And he took the, those photographs to Sadat and then to Begin as gifts before they left. The story that's been told is that Menachem Begin uh, looked at the pictures, read the inscriptions, and started to cry. He wept. And basically said, I'm, let's go back and try again. Let, let's see if we can. And, and they were able then to, to reach agreement. One, that's because of Jimmy Carter's determination and his discipline. But also the guy's humanity, right? Just being a decent human being, writing a warm personal message uh, that that uh, caused that agreement to to take place. And let's not forget that agreement has stood the test of time. It, here we are. How many years later? Forty four years later, I guess. Uh, and it's still in effect. It has not been violated with all the problems in the Middle East that continue and, and the deaths and the destruction and whatnot. It has not occurred between Israel and Egypt. Um, and later Jordan uh, basically signed on. So other bad actors have, have managed to, you know, continue the problem. I would say on both sides of the divide, but that, that get me into trouble. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, as I say, I think Camp David Accords are testimony to Jimmy Carter's perseverance, his courage, willing to take political risk, his knowledge, knowledge of the situation, knowledge of the people, uh, and uh, it worked. So now, during the nineteen eighty campaign, I found it interesting that you know, in July of nineteen eighty three, the New York Times reported that you had Reagan campaign aides receiving briefing papers from the Carter camp in October of 1980. Um, and apparently no one asked how the documents had been obtained. Uh, that's according to former campaign officials. And without exception, the officials, many of whom served in senior positions in the Reagan administration, recall that no one on the group that prepared Reagan for his debate with Carter even asked where the papers had come from or whether they were stolen. Um, you know, Could you walk us through your thoughts when you found out about this? And, and also, if you could also uh, peel back the curtain of how President Carter prepared for the debate with Reagan and how his camp thought he did in the immediate days after that debate, where Reagan famously well, ended by saying, you know, are you uh, four years ago? Again, the debate situation has to be put in context. Okay. I'm always about context. Um, in, night, in the primaries that year, because Carter was not campaigning, actively campaigning for real life. We had a campaign and, the vice president was out campaigning. Rosalind was out campaigning. Cabinet people were out campaigning. Staff people were out campaigning. I mean, we were running an election camp, re-election campaign in every every possible dimension of such a thing, but without the president's involvement, uh, he was not actively. Now he was he was kept abreast of what we were doing, and we had meetings, and so he knew what we were up to, but he wasn't campaigning. 
one of the things that meant was that in the primaries, uh, when people wanted to have a Carter debate Kennedy or Kennedy and Jerry Brown, uh, we took the position, the president took the position, I'm not campaigning, so we're not going to debate. So there were no debates in the primaries, which was held against us. There were critics, right? It was not a, the media didn't like it, so forth. So we paid a price for that. Now we come to the general election and we've got Carter as the nominee. We have the independent candidacy of John Anderson and we've got Ronald Reagan. And the League of Women Voters took the position that all three ought to be on the debate stage because Anderson was at somewhere around 19% in the polls, 20% in the polls. And we took the position, no, why would we do that? John Anderson's not going to be elected president, regardless of his standing in the polls. And why would we put the president in a situation where it's two against one? I mean, there was no political upside to that. So we, we basically told the league to stuff it. They then came back late, they were late in October, mid-October, Anderson had fallen below 15% in the polls, which was the artificial uh, level that the league had established as viability. How they came to that realization, I have no way of knowing. I mean, 15%, 20% doesn't matter. Neither one is going to get elected president. But anyhow, Anderson fell below 15. The league came back and said, okay, now we'll do a two-person debate. At the time that that invitation was extended, we were actually ahead by a couple of, uh, a few points nationally and in key states. It would have been to our advantage not to have a debate, a single debate, because we were already moving in the right direction. But because of what had happened before, no debates in the primary, not debating John Anderson and Reagan before, we almost, we had to say yes, that was the determination. And I was involved in those conversations and Hamilton and Bob Strauss and, and, and we finally just said, look, we got to do it. So we said, yes, there was one debate. Uh, geez, what was it? Just a week before the election, I think, uh, October 29th or something. Yeah. It was actually my birthday, October 28th. <laughs> October 28th huh? Yeah. October 28th, 1980. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, well, it didn't turn out to be much for a birthday present, <laughs> uh, because, uh, Reagan came across as affable. I mean, one of the problems that Reagan had going into the, the election was this fear, uh, that he wasn't up to the job or that he was dangerous, a, a risky choice. So what he had to do was sort of cross the presidential threshold, right? To be seen as a plausible president uh, and not a scary figure. I, I, I don't think there's any escaping the fact that he managed to do that. Uh, uh, Carter, on the other hand, came across as a detail-oriented guy, uh, very serious, uh, uh, not a, I don't know how you put this. He, he did not come across as a cuddly sort <laughs> in the debate. 
Um, and then, and then there was the infamous uh, reference to Amy and nuclear weapons and stuff. And, and uh, there was Car uh, Reagan's line when Carter hit him on social security, you know, Reagan said, oh, there you go again. And sort of, you know, uh, so we were not, we were not happy with the debate. We staff campaign staff did not think it had been our best moment. Uh, and I think part of the reason, by the way, and I haven't talked to Rafshun or any of the other folks involved in this, because Carter had not debated in the primaries and had not debated earlier, he was sort of out of shape <laughs> debate-wise, right? Whereas Reagan had had debates throughout the primaries. And he and Anderson had, quote, debated, although it was a it was a joke because they both just took turns hitting, you know, slamming Carter for not being there. But he, he had been through, he'd, he'd been at spring training <laughs> and Carter had uh, to use a sports metaphor. And I think that hurt Carter uh, in that debate. So, it, but you know, it probably, it, it may have been decisive, but just think how things would have been different if those hostages had been released around that time and that we hadn't had to go through the last weekend of the campaign with the media reminding everybody that it was the one year anniversary of the hostages being taken, news or saturation news coverage. And, and that's what killed us. That's what killed us. What was it? The debate was unfortunate. The hostages were. So, yeah, and I just want to clarify: I wasn't born in 1980, but I was born in October. Oh, yeah, it's your birthday, right? <laughs> but, I but figured, anyway, I feared that. I mean, either yeah. that, or you're the oldest undergraduate at Oakland <laughs> University when I was there a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I was always curious to know why didn't President Carter, or did he, give any consideration to running in 1984? Uh, the way President Trump is running for 2024? Well, let me, I'll answer the question directly, but let me just say, so in the fall of 1980, I moved from the DNC back to the campaign to become, because Tim Kraft had to take the leave of absence and I was the acting campaign manager. Now, really what I was, was the national field director because Ham Jordan was the, Hamilton was the, he was vice chair of the campaign, but he was calling the shots, right? So I was, I was really running the field operation, but the title campaign manager is on my resume. Uh, I have the dubious distinction, therefore, of having been a campaign manager of a re-election campaign that lost 44 states. So how many people are gonna hire me to run their presidential campaign? <laughs> uh, Jimmy Carter lost 44 states. And, and, and while it's talked about as a land, it was a landslide in electoral terms, electoral college terms, the popular vote was not that bad. I mean, 51, 43 and Anderson got like seven or something like that. Uh, but I think, and, and Carter then, you know, left the presidency, turned his attention to the next chapter in his life, uh, decided to, to build the Carter Center yeah, I think he made that decision in 82 or 83 and to focus on disease eradication and peace, uh, you know, uh, 
mediating disputes and things like that. I think Jimmy Carter had turned the page in his own life and I don't think ever considered running again, given both the, the nature of the defeat in 1980 and the fact that he had moved on and realized he could continue to do good uh, uh, as a consequential private citizen. It was there. And, and by the way, uh, he and Mondale may have had conversations about this uh, because we had the first sort of Mondale strategy meeting of about a dozen of us with the former, by then former, well, he was still vice, was before the inauguration. We actually met in early January to begin planning Mondale's 84 campaign. And I don't think Mondale would have done that had he thought for a moment that Carter might run, run again in 84. I mean, that just wouldn't have happened. So, uh, you know, big difference, so many differences between Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump. I don't even want to start the list. And, and the thing that strikes me about that period is I, I was looking at an interview by Sam Donaldson, uh, who used to work with ABC News, and he said that after President Carter knew that he lost the election and it was a wrap, he said that the, the most painful thing that he heard over the course of the 1980 campaign was Jerry Falwell telling his viewers, finally, we have a Christian in the White House. Yeah. Could yeah. you talk about the televangelist movement um, that sided with Reagan and, and, and really started to um, take form around this time period and the toll it took on President Carter, who was a Christian himself? Well, you mentioned Sam Donaldson, who I, I actually personally liked a lot and got along with very well uh uh my daughter was in the fifth grade and her class came to the white house they were studying journalism and sam i got sam to speak to the group of fifth graders so there was a side of sam donaldson that the viewers didn't see uh he could be he could be a rascal but he's also a very good guy and a very good reporter but what happened was carter got a majority of the evangelical Protestant vote in 1976 uh, because he he was seen, if you will, as one of them, right? I mean, born-again Christian, church-going, you know, uh, open about his faith, uh, talked about it quite openly. Uh, once in office, however, uh, Carter stand on certain issues like the Equal Rights Amendment. And while Carter himself was, uh, uh, I, I'm going to use their term, pro-life, I mean, he was against abortion. Personally, he was not going to make that governmental policy. He just didn't think that was right. Uh, but the other thing is the evangelical movement itself got involved in, if you will, secular matters that aren't you know, aren't religious. And, I mean, they were adamant against the Panama Canal treaties. Now, if somebody can tell me what the biblical justification for that is, you know, uh, I'll, uh, I'll be interested in the answer and, and so many other things. And, and there have been books about written that, the, that, that whole movement started to coalesce, not just the evangelical 
approximate, but they begin to coalesce, share resources and lists and strategies with other hard right groups, the National Rifle Association being among them, uh, the National Conservative Political Life, NICPAC, uh, comes into being about that time. Uh, the Heritage Foundation comes into being about that time. Uh, the the uh, so there's a there's a coalescing of the conservative, theologically conservative element, and the right wing conservative. And by the way, that right wing is seems moderate now in many ways compared to what we see with the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and so forth. But they all came together. Newt Gingrich gets elected to Congress in 1978 and immediately starts, you know, he's a bomb thrower from the start, figuratively speaking. So uh, by 1980, this is not a theological issue. This is sheer politics. And Jerry uh, Falwell, Pat Robertson, uh, Jim Baker, uh, they're all on the other side and they're working hand in glove with the National Rifle Association, the anti, uh, Phil Shafley, you know, the anti-abortion people, anti-ERA people, uh, and, uh, and formed, you know, the, the right wing movement that, by the way, then supported Reagan. It was a big part of his getting the nomination and, and his base. And uh, in some forms, exists to this day. Mr. Francis, um, you know, when we started the program today, we started talking about um, the, the, the bombshell report that, you know, Ben Barnes made this confession. And ironically, it seems to have been swallowed up by recent news that there might be a possibility of having a former president prosecuted, first time that would happen in American history. Um, you know, Donald Trump faces you know, criminal charges in New York relating to hush money payments to a porn star, Stormy Daniels, and he maintains he has committed no crime. His attorneys argue he was the victim of extortion. The Manhattan uh, DA's office run by Alvin Bragg, who's a Democrat, isn't uh, commenting and no charges have been announced, but it looks as if we're getting closer and closer to an announcement of indictment, of, of, of uh, an indictment or potential indictments. Um, could you offer your thoughts about this ongoing situation with the former president. Well, you and you did not mention uh, the special prosecutor. Uh, uh, what's his name? John Smith? Yes, John Smith. Look, Jack Smith. Who seems to be closing in on both the the classified documents Mar-a-Lago thing, as well as perhaps uh, the former president's role in the January 6th assault on the Capitol. So yeah, there's New York, there's Fulton County uh, with the election stuff, and there's the special prosecutor. I'm not surprised, and not many people I know are surprised, that Donald Trump turns out to have been a criminal. I mean, we all do that from the beginning. I mean, he had, he had engaged in all sorts of uh, behavior that uh, it's surprising that uh, he hadn't been arrested before uh, for multiple things. Uh, 
I'm not surprised that these investigations have taken the course that they have. There's plenty of evidence that we, you and I know about, the public knows about, but grand juries know more. Uh, uh, and uh, I am one of those who thinks if the grand jury's got the evidence and they want to proceed with indictments, they should. Uh, there are there are those, including Democrats, who argue it's a it's a mistake because it will only cause uh, the Trump forces to rally around him and strengthen his position. Well, that my view of that is that it says more about the Republican base than it does our justice system, and and he should be indicted if the facts are there. He should be tried. And if found guilty, then a determination, you know, there are even Democrats who say maybe he should be pardoned so as not to divide the country further. I can't go there. I think the guy has done incalculable damage to our country, to our constitution, to our civic life. I think he ought to be held accountable for it. Uh, he's engaged in all sorts of crimes, cover-ups, mishandling, serious mishandling of classified documents. Uh, and he incited an insurrection uh, against the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th. I don't think that should go unaddressed. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we never could have imagined and the founding fathers never could have imagined uh, that we'd end up with a president with such a dismal character such deep flaws, such obvious criminal instincts and intents. Uh, I don't think they should go unpunished, uh, whatever the political fallout. Uh, I'm a, a real hawk on that issue. Yeah. And I'll be remiss if I end without asking you about, you know, your mentor. Normanetta. Normanetta, yes. Uh, you know, could you explain how you got involved with Mr. or Congressman Manetta and and the role he played in your life. Well, Normanetta Norm was uh, my uh, friend and mentor and boss, and and uh, shaped my career uh, in immeasurable ways. Uh, as, as we were talking before we went on air, that I met him when I was running for the state legislature in San Jose in 1970, and Norm was on the city council. He was vice mayor and. A rising star and so i went and talked to him about my campaign and and we hit it off immediately and uh, he helped me and um, but then i lost as i say i i trounced the guy who came in seventh in a seven person race uh but norm i i became norm's uh, not on staff but his political advisor i wrote speeches for him and and whatnot we and we we just became very very close friends and we were for the rest of his life uh norm is a very special person and a very special person in the history of this country uh japanese american born in san jose my hometown uh, it turns out it's a funny story uh after i met norm i my parents were alive at the time and lived in San Jose. And I, I was at, at, I think my folks house for dinner or something. And I said, gee, I just met this really nice guy who's the vice mayor, Norm Mineta. 
I think my parents might be impressed. And my mom was, was not impressed because she said, I've known Norm all his life, literally. Her her two closest friends in junior high school and high school were Norm's oldest sister, older sisters. And the day that Norm was born in 1932, uh, they took my sister to the family home on uh, North 5th Street to meet their new baby brother. So she literally did know him his entire life. And uh, when my mom died in 1990, Norm gave the eulogy. And he said he always, it was always difficult for him to be too uh, grand or uppity around Dorothy, my mother's first name, because she had been the first person outside his immediate family who'd ever seen him buck naked. Uh, so. Uh, anyhow, so there were family ties and, and so forth. Um, and I, then when he was elected to Congress and I helped with his election campaign, he asked me to be, go to Washington with him as chief of staff, which I did, uh, and was honored to do so we, because, but we were, it was more than boss and staffer. We were very, very close friends and colleagues. Um, we even even to the point where he and I shared the member's office. We put the desk, both desk and the, what's traditionally the member's office and put them together so that he and I could talk and that I'd be involved in every meeting he had and could hear every phone conversation and so forth. No, no member of Congress had ever done that before. It was unheard of that they would share their office with chief of staff. Um, but one day, uh, just to show how these things can sometimes work, Norm was elected chair of the Freshman Democratic Caucus in June of 1975. Jimmy Carter read about that. Jimmy Carter had campaigned for Norm in the congressional race. They had met at that time. And one day the, the receptionist called me and I had picked up the phone and she said, Former Governor Carter is here and wants to see Norm. Norm was on the floor or in a committee hearing or something, and I'm the senior staff person. On, so I go out, say hello to Governor Carter. And obviously, I knew he was running for president. And we chatted for a few minutes, and he said, look, he said, we're going to have a fundraiser tonight at the Sheraton Hotel near at National Airport. It'll only cost you $25. Why don't you come? I'm going to give a speech. I'll answer a few questions. And then you and I can chat some more there. And I thought, well, that's sort of nice. Yeah, there's a former governor, presidential candidate, wants to spend a few minutes talking with me. So I went, you know, 25 bucks and attended. And, and Carter was talking about stuff that we knew from polling, from Peter Hart, Pat Cadell, a national polling, that he was really on to something about what the American people were looking for, how they were distrustful of their government because of Watergate in Vietnam. Uh, and, and he was talking about competence and zero-based budgeting and all this stuff that we knew resonated with. And I had said, this guy could go all the way. And he, at the time, he was in 1% in the polls, right? So I signed up as an early Carter supporter and uh, ended up then taking vacation time to help him in the Pennsylvania primary. And I worked at the convention in New York and then I ran the field operation in California in the general election. And that led 
to be in a you know an offer to be on the White House staff from Frank Warren, congressional liaison. None of that would have happened if I hadn't been in the office on that day in July of 1975, right? I mean, who knows where, I, but none of what followed would have followed. And I, I always cite that as an example to young people who are thinking about getting involved in politics, that when an opportunity comes up, you take it, right? I mean, you just take it. Uh, now, I was, it was consistent with my values, consistent with my beliefs, uh, I didn't have to take an opportunity that I didn't believe in. It was, I was strongly convinced that he was a good guy and would be a good president and a good candidate, which he, all of which turned out to be true. Um, but it, it, so Norm indirectly in that instance, and by the way, when, when after the election, uh, I was not going to go into the administration. I was offered a job in the transition and I, I decided I was going to go back to work for Norm for two years or four years and then maybe return to California, maybe run for office myself again. Uh, but I, I, did, I had no intent of going into the administration. I was looking for a job. And Frank Moore called Norm in early February of 77 and said, we'd like to talk to Les about a job in the administration. Is that okay with you? Uh, and Norm said, sure, Talk, you know, he said, I don't know if Les is interested, but yeah, because Norm never stood in the way of any staff person uh, taking another opportunity. He, he saw it as a credit to his own operation. If people wanted to hire somebody on his staff, he thought that was a plus, not a minus. And so I went and I had the interview and was offered a job and decided to take it. And Norm ended up being one of Carter's most consistent supporters on issues. Uh, and, uh, and Norm and I stayed very, very close, uh, all the way to my last conversation with him was a couple of days before he died. Um, uh, so, and, and we used to talk, you know, once or twice a week, week he'd call me, I'd call him and, uh, it, it, it is a, uh, it's a major hole in my life, right? Because when something happens, whether it's what Trump has said or done, or, you know, Biden presidency, or, you know, Norm would have called me or I would have called him and say, hey, what do you think of this? Or how about that? Or can you believe, you know, and I can't do that anymore because you're not here. And of course, he went on to serve as the Secretary of Transportation for President Clinton. But the last and question I want to ask you, Mr. Francis. Secretary of Commerce for Clinton, Secretary of Transportation for Bush, a Democrat and a Republican. And President Clinton spoke at Norm's memorial service out here in San Jose and was absolutely marvelous. And if you have the time, some time, go to YouTube and, and look up the the memorial service because it's quite Willie Brown spoke, Leon Panetta spoke, uh, Bill Clinton spoke. Uh, it was, uh, it was quite a production. My last, it was my last assignment for Normanetta was to advance his, uh, memorial service in San Jose. Wow. Well, the, the last question I want to ask you, sir, um, you, you're a big proponent of civic education. Um, how do you believe civic education will help some of the polarization we've seen in this country 
um, and some of the, you know, just um, unreasonableness uh, of folks. You know, there, there's fears that if Trump gets indicted, like we were talking about earlier, there's going to be, you know, more political violence. Uh, there's going to be actually an increase of support for him in his candidacy uh, in his quest to seek the, the White House yet again. How would civic engagement um, solve, um, you know, the polarization and allow voters to make better, well-educated decisions as to who to place their political support behind? Mike, that's a really good question. It's a tough question. I, I'll have to tell you, and I've been working on civic education nationally now for, well, I've been, I've believed in it my entire life. I was going to be a social studies teacher. That was my career objective. Never did it because politics got in the way. Uh, but I sometimes worry that it may be too late, <laughs> that our failure to educate our citizenry around uh, constitutional norms and civic norms and uh, how the system should work and how we should behave and and uh, what our role is of, as citizens, what our responsibilities are. I, I, I as I say, I, I sometimes fear that it, it just may be too late given what we've seen, but we can't give up. Uh, uh, my friend Dick Gephardt, the former Democratic leader in the House, uh, uh, and I say friend, he really is a friend. We've worked on things together and have talked frequently. He said, Les, we got We all have to do what we can, do whatever we can, wherever we are, uh, uh, you know, whenever we can. And I still believe that. Uh, so civic education, I think we've got to keep trying. And, and it's more than knowing the three branches of government, although that's a good place to start. Um, it's knowing uh, what the constitutional guarantees are. It's knowing how our political system works, the role of parties, the role of interest groups, the role of the media, uh, having a, a more robust knowledge of how the system really works. And I think we failed that. I think, I think civic illiteracy is a huge problem in this country. And I think it has contributed mightily to the divisions we see. And I, I would add that part of civic education, writ large, is media literacy and critical thinking skills. Because, first of all, that would have been important in any era. But with the, uh, the development or the presence of social media, where anything goes, where the most outlandish things are said and claimed and so forth. And people just not having the ability to say, well, that can't be true, <laughs> you know, or, you know, and check it out, uh, check other sources. I mean, this is a social media. If you take a civically illiterate population, and lay on top of it Wild West social media where anything goes, it is a prescription for disaster. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we saw on January 6th. Absolutely. It's what we see, unfortunately, continuing. I live in a rural, very red county in California. 
we're anti-masking, anti-social distancing, anti-vaccine, uh, proud boy craziness, uh, QAnon conspiracies. Uh, and I'm, I often just marvel at it. I just say, how in the world can this be happening? But it is. And, and uh, we got to do something about it. Civic education in the schools is part of it. Civic education in our faith institutions is part of it. Civic education at home is part of it. Now, my parents were Republicans. Uh, my dad was pretty conservative. But they voted in every single election. They voted for every single bond issue. They voted for every single school tax. And they, without lecturing us, my sister and me, they left us with a lesson, which is, and you know this, you're, you're, you're living proof of it, that, that we got to leave this world better than we found it. That's our responsibility as individuals, right? It's no more complicated than that. Um, and and my hope at civic education, uh, civic engagement, will get more people uh, to see that as a as an essential value of being an American citizen. Mr. Les Francis, this has been a privilege and honor to to speak with you. I thoroughly enjoyed um, every bit of this conversation. Um, thank you so much for making episode 100 such a special episode. Yeah, the centennial. I'm, yeah. I'm honored, Mike. <laughs> it's it's my honor. Thank you so much. For this. I, I want to have you back on with Jonathan Alter. I recently had him on. Maybe if I can have the two of you together, I think that would be a wonderful, wonderful episode. Well, I tell you, Mike, I looked at the some of the people you've had on in the previous 99 episodes. And I thought, what a step down from that quality to somebody <laughs> like me. No, not at all. Not at all. Well, uh, Mr. Thank you so much. Nice to be with you. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Mike Taylor, the host of the Political Mike podcast. If you like what you heard tonight, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I also want to ask you to please follow along on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Amazon Music. You can also follow along and keep up with the conversation through our Telegram channel. Follow us on Twitter at, at ThePolyMike, and follow us on Instagram. Thank you so much, and no matter what part of the political spectrum that you fall on, I want to encourage you to stay engaged, stay a part of the conversation, and stay informed. Thank you.